0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.
1: Welcome, everybody. Leadership in Action. This is Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Mike Usain, Director of the Leadership Center and Faculty Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm with my friend, my colleague, Ann Greenhall, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. Um, Jeff Klein is off tonight, but uh, Ann, we've got a couple of great guests coming in. And before we we get to the guests, uh, let me just briefly mention who they are, and then I've got uh, our weekly questions, so be ready, (laughs) unrehearsed. Okay, Okay, ready. It's it's a hard one. (laughs) I know it will be. So there it is, okay. (laughs) Okay. And I want all of our (laughs) listeners to be ready for the question as well, want them all to think it through. Uh, Our first guest tonight is going to be uh, Patricia Lenkov, who heads up a firm called Agility Executive Search. Uh, she specializes in bringing, uh, among others, directors onto board. She also does executive search, but she does director search as well. I'm going to talk with her in particular about what some of the big trends are out there for board membership, board organization. Of great momentary interest is a new California law that mm. requires companies to bring women onto the board. We'll talk about that and also Tesla that got itself into a little bit of a fix when its CEO sent out a tweet that was um, judged improper by the Securities Exchange Commission. The uh, board of Tesla is looking for a couple new independent people to be on the board. We're going to talk with Patricia about that as well. And then we have Uzi Hanui, uh, Hanuni. Hanuni. I think I've got it right, Uzi. hope you're listening. You can correct me on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you are the chief executive of MaxTet Networks, an Israeli technology firm that, among other things, helped the rescue of the wild boars soccer team this past Mm. summer uh, when they got caught in a Thai cave for more than a couple weeks. One of the biggest stories, in fact, of the summer um, a couple months ago. (laughs) I now want to bring on our guest, uh, Patricia Lenkov. So, Patricia, great to have you on our program.
2: Thank you so much. Delighted to be here.
1: And, Patricia, I'm going to start with a relatively straightforward question on executive search. Uh, We're familiar with the term, but my guess is many listeners are not. So maybe even taking your own agility executive search, the name of the firm that you created and uh, that you head now, tell us what it means to be executive search. And, by the way, if you could also help us understand the term headhunting. Mm.
2: Sure. I myself had no idea really what executive search people or executive recruiters, headhunters did um, until, actually I read a book called Rites of Passage at 100,000K Plus, which did a very good job of educating me on the search uh, business. And essentially, I would say that a lot of people don't really understand what executive search is. And all um put it into i guess one simple sentence we get hired by corporations and businesses and sometimes investors like private equity firms and venture capital firms to find could be a board director could be an executive could be a manager depending on sort of where um, you know in the food chain we go but essentially it's looking for an executive to fill a role and why we're called headhunters is i think because we go in, and unlike more passive job search that we all grew up with where you look for a job and you apply online or find a company and send your resume, as a headhunter, we go to people generally who are actively and gainfully employed, and we try to take them out of their role and entice them with our, you know, our opportunity and the, the search that we're working on. So it's called headhunting because we are essentially hunting heads that are in jobs rather than people who are, I mean, we look at people who are out in the marketplace as well, but most of the work and most of the reason we get hired is to look for people who are already in a position and happily engaged.
1: Patricia, to take an analog with another area that most listeners will be well familiar with, and that is real estate brokerage. The custom, and I think generally around the country is for the seller to pay for the brokerage so that the buyer does not pay a fee, the seller works, for The uh, sorry, the broker works for the seller and tell us about the analog in your own world. Who actually pays for executive search and placement um, and wh- what are some of the terms of that kind of uh, payment for service?
2: Good question and one that is misunderstood many times. So, Generally, we get, well, there's two, let me break it down this way. There's two types of executive search. There's retained and there's contingency, and that's an important distinction. So some search people get paid on a contingency basis, which essentially means the company will pay the recruiter only when a person is hired. So that's why it's called contingency. And then there's retained search, which is what I have done for the last 21 plus years. I like to say since I was (laughs) <laughs>
1: um, Very good.
2: Yeah, so um, retained search people are hired by the company once again, but they are on a retained basis. So they act more like a consultant and get paid part of the fee when they begin part of the fee let's say in the middle of the search and then part of the fee when it ends and they get paid no matter what the result is and they work more as i said like a consultant very high level strategic search It's very processed and proactive and we become a partner with the company that hires us and go into the market on their behalf so it's high level consulting paid for by the company that is looking to fill a position That being said, I'll just add a little nuance here in that sometimes, and it's happened more recently, there are executives who want to sit on a board or who want a new role, and they do hire kind of like a coach, an advisor, and they do pay a person, not myself, but other types of sort of, I will say for lack of a better word, coach, to go out, or agent Mm -hmm. actually is the word that's sometimes used, to go out and advocate, and look for opportunities on their behalf. So there is that kind of cottage industry that's sprung up recently, but in general, mm-hmm. traditional executive searches paid for by companies.
1: And, Patricia, to pick up on that for a moment more, and I'm going to turn the baton over to my friend here in the studio, Ann Greenhall, the, you and others akin to what you have been doing work for the company. You're looking for a new chief financial officer or a head of technology or – a marketing director, maybe even a non-executive director on the board itself. Uh, and from that, I derive the following question. Um, you're working for the firm, and there are a lot of people out there that would like to get your attention so they might be considered for that position, whether chief technology officer or maybe a non-executive director. So for those listeners out there who have thought about moving they or they want to go onto a board, how do they get your attention knowing that you're not working for them, you are working for the company or the foundation or whatever it might be that is looking for a new head to bring in?
2: That is the million dollar
0: question. <laughs> Mike, better than a great question. You got okay. the million dollar question. Million
2: dollar question. <laughs> great.
0: <Yeah.
2: laughs> so I will say that the best recruiters out there will take everybody, you know, will. Take qualified resumes from most people and put it in their database, and respond with a thank you. And if you know, if we're working on something that's appropriate, obviously engage with the person. But if not, uh, you know, acknowledge the resume, acknowledge the email. It used to be obviously acknowledge the mail. I was doing it when we used to get you know stacks of mail coming in Um, but essentially you know it's hard to give you know I get a lot of emails that say can I have 15 minutes of your time because I'm looking to change my job or get on a board and while I would love to do that it's really hard if I'm working on you know Searches for companies. Mm-hmm. So um, the best way I think to get the attention of a recruiter is two things. One is understand that they are working for the company, and as much as we would like to um, be benevolent and do the right thing, it's very hard to manage. You know the the mm-hmm. amount of onslaught of, of resumes that we all get. Anybody who's been in the business, you know, for a long time will tell you the same thing. But I think the other key point that people sometimes don't realize is if you're not, if we call you and you're not interested in the search that we're working on, answer the call and if you can make a recommendation or a suggestion because then you begin to get known as a friend of the firm, a friend of the recruiter. And we remember that and we note that in our in our databases. Mm. And then we call you, you know, when we do have the right search. So I think you need to, it's like anything else, you need to build the relationship before mm. you need the relationship so that you have it and you can, you know, could be mutually beneficial.
0: Patricia, it's so nice to have an opportunity to talk with you. We're talking about executive search, and so let me ask a really naive question here. Why is it that we don't have headhunters for uh, more middle-level or lower-level positions? Is it simply a matter of the finances?
2: It's partially a matter of the finances. It's partially also that a lot of this work gets done in-house. So there has been a trend, well, it started, I would say, around 2008 for sure, where people were um, diminishing the amount of external search that they were doing, and they were doing a lot in-house with their own either HR people or talent acquisition, talent management people. So it's not to say that they don't do it they may not do it outside with people such as myself but that being said it's also true that there are specialists in middle level management there are specialists for mm-hmm. executive assistance there are healthcare care specialists so mm. there's a lot of niche recruiting business out there you know that I just happen to be in my space which is you know, the C-level and the boards, but there are people doing it at different levels and in different industries and and functional areas.
1: Patricia, I'm going to break in and just remind all of our listeners that we are in discussion with you. Patricia Lenkoff, founder and president of Agility Executive Search. I'm Mike Hussein. I'm with Anne Greenhall, and you are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132.
0: Okay, Patricia, just uh, just for fun, when you were uh young, say 10, did you imagine that you would be in this business?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, what were you <laughs> I'm picturing? Absolutely <egravically> not. <laughs> I uh, you know, when I was younger, I thought that I would be one of two things, either a psychologist, and I huh. feel like many times I am a psychologist in this role, and I also wanted to be a veterinarian. So those were huh you know, my two things that I was thinking about and never thought about search. But I did go to business school. And this is business school every day, because I have to learn about new companies, new industries very quickly, try to understand the culture and the nuances of a particular business and jump in there and try and be helpful very quickly. And every, you know, day or week, it's a different industry, a different business. So it's like business school, you know, for 21 years, and I've been doing this.
0: Yeah. And you do have an undergraduate degree in psychology. Yes. Okay. So just for fun, say a little bit about how that undergraduate degree in psychology has proved useful to you in your career.
2: So I always, I, I believe that search is an art and a science, and mm. recruiting is an art and a science. So you look at a resume And, you know, the person has to have the qualifications on paper. So company X might be looking for a CFO to use the example uh, previously, and the CFO must have um, accounting experience or foreign, uh, whatever the experience is. And then you look at a resume, and it either matches or it doesn't. And that's only the starting point, though, because (laughs) I think most... And this is why I don't believe computers will take over. You know, it's been speculated the search industry is going the way of the dinosaur because computers will take it over. But I believe the art part about it, which is where psychology comes in, is the ability to read between the lines and understand a person, what makes them tick. Um, what's going to motivate them, whether they will be a fit for a particular culture. Mm-hmm. So as a recruiter, we need to understand the culture of the company and understand what kind of individuals will be successful in a particular company. So all of that is art, mm-hmm. it's psychology, and I believe that when interviewing people also, it's You know, I have a a philosophy, it's not always what they say, it's what they don't say, it's what they do. It's what happens in the many steps of a recruiting process. So, you know, the first interview, you know, happens and then there might be a whole bunch of things that happen in between. And all of that, if you pay attention, provides uh, clues and keys and insights to a person's behavior that is very important. And I pay attention to all of that. Because again, some people are really good at selling,
0: yes, <laughs> and you
2: have to get beyond that mm-hmm. and try to dig deeper and I think that's where sort of the art and the psychology come in.
0: Very good. I'm going to slip in one more question and then hand back to Mike Mike you seem. Uh, can you give an example? I really appreciate what you what you said. You have to listen to what what the candidate says, what the candidate doesn't say, what the candidate does and that's part of the art. So just to make that come alive, can you give an illustration?
2: Sure. So I'm going to give a very superficial one because it's the first one that comes to my oh. mind, but it'll resonate with a lot of people, I believe. So I remember back in the day when I was working for a very large search firm, um, we were interviewing, myself and my boss at the time, we were interviewing a very senior executive who was, I believe, a CEO or former CEO and very, you know, decent reputation, and we had high expectations, and I can't remember what the role was. It might have been a board role. And uh, he came in, and he was just very poorly, I don't want to say dressed, but his attire was inappropriate. Hmm. And, you know, you need to, I mean, you know, the old saying, a first impression is a lasting impression.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So... It you know it was very hard to get let's put it, it was very hard to get past that first that bad impression because it showed kind of a lack of judgment and sensitivity. Um, so these are the kind of things that you know as much as somebody might look good on paper, it's hard to get past mm-hmm. certain obvious sort of red flags. Mm,
1: very good. All right, Mike, <laughs> Patricia, let's stay on this with a kind of an analog here. It's often said in the housing market, we all think our, our own home is worth a lot if we're going to go on to market and sell it. But what it actually is worth is what is the price that some buyers willing to pay. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, along that line, just now to connect executive search with issues of leadership, I've often thought by analog that the moment of truth when you find a good candidate and place a candidate in a senior position. Uh, Whatever we may think we want to see abstractly in the leadership of a person or what are the most important qualities of leadership, generally speaking, it's in this moment when you actually place a person, the company wants the person for the leadership that they bring. That is my preamble uh, to this question for a person who would like to go into the – you referenced the C-suite, those those top positions that report to the CEO – or you'd like to become a chief executive, or at least a senior manager, or maybe even join a board, whether of a for-profit or non-profit, what are some of the leadership capacities that you'd like to see in a person, either on the resume or maybe in person? I like your account a few minutes ago that those first impressions do count. So that's a long-winded way of saying, what do you look for when somebody comes to you and they would like to enter into a more senior leadership position. What do you look for in them, in their resume, in their background, even in their demeanor?
2: So it depends, you know, on the resume, it depends on what the role is and what they're looking for. But I think more importantly, I think the ability to listen and learn, very important. The ability to reinvent oneself and evolve and learn and not stay stuck high emotional intelligence very 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 important i'll say very like five hundred times emotional intelligence Mm. could overcome so many other sort of lacks if you don't have the right for example industry experience or may not have been at the right company i think if you have a high emotional intelligence level i think you can overcome a lot and i will also say that communication skills. you know i said before that some people are really great at selling Um, I think that's really important, but I think more important is the ability to listen and communicate thoughts clearly. So, you know, we used to call it um, board readiness, and I think it's executive Mm -hmm. readiness or executive presence, but I think those soft skills, you know, are really very important, and I think the sort of old line imperial CEO who dominated by fear um, is gone,
1: hmm. and I
2: think people who have a more subtle, humble um, approach and style are really what you know. People are what we're looking for these days. So you obviously, you yeah. need to have the smarts and know the business and know how. To, at the end of the day, how to get results.
1: And a quick follow-up question on that, referencing a term that I sometimes hear. Here's the term strategic fit. <laughs> And that seems to point at the importance, not only that people have these general skills, emotional intelligence, executive presence, but what they bring in particular is what the company is looking for. So to what extent, aside from these more general qualities, is the person's particular fit uh, vital, strategic fit? Reference that if you would.
2: Sure. So... You know, and I don't want to send the impression to anybody that it's all about soft skills, because it's not. I mean, we are dealing with companies that have objectives and that have short-term, medium-term, long-term plans. And I think the fit and the strategic fit is, for example, we are undergoing a transformation. And we would like somebody who's been through transformation before, or we are growing, we are acquiring, we are doing M&A, any of the above, And we need somebody who's sort of been there, done that, and seen it through. So those would be strategic fits. Or, you know, we're expanding into Asia. We need somebody who has run a business in Asia. So there's all of that practical business strategy that needs to be fulfilled in a candidate that, you know, the company is going to hire And that's above and beyond all of the soft stuff. So I think they go hand in hand, and you need to have both, but you definitely need to have this kind of strategic fit. You know, companies are evolving, and what they're looking for should evolve um, accordingly, so the strategy should not be the same forever. And as the strategy evolves, the type of talent that a company needs needs to evolve as well.
0: How about one one more question before uh, we take a short break. When we think about fit, uh, I'm wondering if the executive readiness, executive presence, are there patterns? Is there a difference in that template when we're talking about CEOs as opposed to chief operating officers or chief technology officers? Have you seen certain patterns uh, in the C-suite itself?
2: You know, I think a good executive is a good executive. Their skills may be different but i think the type of executive that we need in a fortune five hundred they will sort of have some common traits no matter whether they are a cfo ceo or coo mm-hmm. cio i think if you're dealing in family businesses which you know most of america are small private companies and family businesses, right. that is a different style and a different type of person so I think it's it's not necessarily maybe um, functionally different, but I think depending on the size and the scale and the formality of the company, you might need a different type of executive, whether it be a CIO or a CFO, if mm. that makes sense.
1: It does. Thank you. Patricia, we're going to take a brief breather. I want listeners to stay with us. We are talking with Patricia Lenkov, president of Agility Executive Search. And when we come back, uh, just to anticipate uh, a topic that we referenced earlier, we're going to get on to the question of the new California law that now mandates, if you are incorporated in the state of California, uh, in a couple of years, you've got to have at least one woman on your board. A couple of years after that, at least two. There's teeth in that. So we're going to be talking about that. And also, Patricia will turn to again, we anticipated this earlier on uh, what's happening at Tesla in that uh, there is a search now for a couple independent board members. Stay with us, everyone. We're going to be talking uh, all that through. I'm Mike Hussein, I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And of course, you're listening to Business Radio. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, Channel
0: 132.
1: In the rain, and Jeff is our engineer and producer tonight, and Jeff, you've got us dancing yeah, here yeah, in the studio. Right. So that was a good uh, <laughs> welcome back to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Anne Greenhall. And our guest, we've been in discussion with her now for the better part of a half an hour, is Patricia Lenkoff, founder and president of Agility Executive Search. And Patricia, just before the break, uh, we made allusion to the new California law. It's quite, uh, call it amazing, Uh, maybe indicative of the era as well. Uh, about bringing women onto boards of companies that are incorporated in California. That's a key provision. There are not a whole lot of companies out there. I know Apple is one, but um, many, in fact, half of the Fortune 500 is um, domiciled or registered or incorporated in the state of Delaware. Nonetheless, there are many companies that do have their papers of incorporation dated or signed by California. So, Patricia, tell us about the new law and what your forecast is for it and its impact.
2: Sure. So this is a very bold move, but it's not entirely unexpected. And the reason I say that is because California passed what we call a non-binding resolution back in about 2012. So they had Soft law, so there were no consequences. It wasn't really a law. It was more like a request or a comply and explain asking companies headquartered in California to put more women on their board. So it was uh the preamble to this current law. And uh interestingly enough, I'll talk about California in a minute, but I want to say that Illinois, Massachusetts, Colorado and your state of Pennsylvania also have non-binding resolutions calling on companies in their states to improve gender diversity on boards. So these are not legal quotas; they're more compliant. Explain, but they're a signal that this is an important issue, um, and it's not going away. And as California, the first to pull the trigger, it's you know only going to get. Uh, more important and I think more focused on. So I think the nuance you brought up is companies that are headquartered in California, but not necessarily um, incorporated. So that's, you know, the loophole. And I foresee um, pushback, you know, fights, legal battles, and so on. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, it highlights the fact that diversity is very important. It contributes to effective decision-making, and that should be true on boards as you know, as elsewhere in general.
1: Let me ask about that in terms of uh, a soft request versus a hard and fast uh, rule. Um, Famously, the country of Norway some years back now passed a provision. It is enforced. If you are listed on the Norwegian Stock Exchange and you don't have 40% of your board of the female persuasion, you've got a couple years of grace to solve or resolve the issue, but if you don't, you are delisted. How is that for teeth? And so in the case of California, uh just go into now this is the new law has actually got uh, teeth not quite that strong. But nonetheless, there is a financial penalty, as I recall, if you don't achieve, uh, if you don't have at least one woman on your board by a certain date and then two or more two years later. So uh, tell us uh, a little bit more about that. And is that going to work?
2: so the The consequence in California is a fine, and I think the first fine is a hundred thousand dollars and the second time i'm not exactly sure if it's the second time or after the second i don't know a couple of years later it's three hundred thousand so for many companies, this is a non you know it's- it's immaterial as a consequence, and I think that probably is by design, so it's not going to be the financial consequence it's going to cause. People to move uh, towards gender diversity. I think it's more that if they don't, you know, they will be identified and they will be perhaps even shamed and you know um, portrayed as not uh, complying. And I don't think that a hundred thousand dollars is going to make a big difference. I think the fact that we are measuring this and we're focusing on it now will be enough for many companies to start to um, do what is essentially a good business practice. So this is not a punishment. This is a call to improve, you know, improve your board, which essentially has been proven time and again Uh, gender-diverse board or diverse boards in general, and I'll I'll talk about that in one second, uh, lead to better business results. So it's not designed to be a punishment or some social good, although there is that embedded in it. It's more like gender diversity or diversity on boards leads to better decision-making, which improves business results, and we should all be paying attention to that um, in the year 2018, soon to be, you know, 2019. Um, I think what's missing in the diversity, um, you know, law as California has defined it as other types of diversity. So, of course, mm. gender diversity is important and visible and easy to measure, but there's also, of course, ethnic diversity. There's age diversity, which is a hot topic these days. You know, should boards put on younger people? We talk about geographic diversity. So there's a lot of different types of diversity that should also, you know, come into play when boards are trying to change themselves and evolve.
0: Patricia, if we, if we look up and uh, across the globe, I understand that you all have also have experience uh, and understanding of what's going on in the U.K. Could you talk to that?
2: Sure. So the U.K. has something called the Lord Davies Rule slash report, and it's much like what California used to have. It's prescriptive, it's a voluntary approach. It's self-regulatory. It was based on a report that came out in 2015 um, describing the ways to improve gender balance on British boards, and they asked for the FTSE 100 hmm. to go up to 25% women. And it's interesting in all of these debates, and there's a lot of pushback on California, but you know, we're, these rules talk about 20 and 30% usually, or Norway, I think you said, is 40%. But, the you know, there are 50% women in this world, so we never actually ask for 50%. You know, <laughs> they're asking for 25%. So,
0: Very modest.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it, that's a sidebar. But essentially, so Lord Davies created this report, and as a result, FTSE 100 uh, companies were, were requested nicely to uh, add more women to their boards. And what's interesting is I spent... I want to say the better part of two or three years back about 5 years ago when this was beginning putting with a partner in London actually putting women from the United States and Canada on boards in the UK hmm. so that they would they did not have enough of a supply and they were coming here to North America to add women, to take women from here and put them on U.K. boards, which was very interesting and, of course, a lot of fun for me to work on this. Um, But it was interesting that they didn't have enough senior-level executive women, and I think they learned from Norway's mistake because one of the things that we learned from Norway is that it was a very – rigid and large uh, quota that they had. And they ended up putting on what is affection- affectionately referred to as the golden skirts. So they found a number of women and put them on many, many boards. And it actually did not serve companies as well as they had hoped. So I think Lord Davies was uh, a little bit later on. And uh, we looked in Canada and the United States to fill a lot of lot of the seats.
0: Now, just uh, one follow up and then back to Mike. Uh, is it is it the case that there were not enough women? Because isn't that often the claim, we don't have enough people in the pipeline and fill in the descriptor. Is it the case that there weren't, and I'm assuming that must be true, but I'm just going to question anyway. (laughs) And was there any uh, resentment on the part of women in the UK with all these American women on their boards?
2: So I think that, you know, in general, we talk about, in diversity circles that it's not a it's not a supply issue it's a demand issue and I think when we change the way we look at boards and say to ourselves the entire board does not need to be CEOs and I think that's sort of what's happening now is that we used to say we need everybody to be an operator on our board and while you do need you know some operators and some people who are CEOs or former CEOs or who know how to run a business in its entirety you do not need a board that's entirely made up of CEOs because the truth is that's another form of lack of diversity so I think as we start to think of other skills that are needed in the boardroom like technology or marketing um, you know, mm-hmm. analytics, mo- uh, mobility, social media, you know, um, cyber security, all of these areas are, you know, we need them in the boardroom. And we also have an abundance of women who are very senior, who are specialized in these areas, who could be, a, you know, chief marketing officer, chief information officer, who are more than qualified to sit on a board, who bring a particular expertise that is very valuable today. So I think. I don't know if there was resentment, but I think this is a a sort of an evolving area. And I think at the beginning there may not have been enough or, you know, they may have looked for particular expertise over here. But I think in general, everybody is evolving and, you know, trying to um, change and find the right people Mm -hmm. accordingly.
1: That's great. Thank you, Mike. Patricia, picking up on the on the really interesting observation, we share it here as well, that it's really a, a demand issue and not a supply mm-hmm. problem. There are lots of people out there of all kinds of gender persuasions and racial backgrounds who uh, they know a lot. They've been in management. Uh, they can think like the rest of us, uh, like anybody, about what a company might need in the executive suite or the boardroom. So with that said... And the fact, and you know this, I'm just going to say it, that the big investment institutional holders like State Street and Vanguard and Fidelity and BlackRock, they've all been campaigning now for a couple of years for more women to come onto boards, for boards to be more diverse. And there's teeth in that coming from several of these uh, large holders. State Street, for example, announced that in a couple of years, it will, buy policy now, vote against directors who are up for re-election on the annual proxy statement who are on the nominations committee if the board consists only of men. So State Street is saying (laughs) we're going to try to vote them out. Uh, And uh, BlackRock and Vanguard uh, have been right in there along with uh, State Street in arguing for more diversity. Their argument is uh, based on a lot of research that Anne and I know as well, of course, that more diverse boards of directors, teams in general, they do a better job, a little bit slower because there's that diversity, but <laughs> yeah. the outcome is is statistically better. So with that said, and going back to the fact that we got pretty good supply, why are so many boards now unable to move in this direction without California kicking them in kind of the seat of the pants there?
2: Yeah, so I think... Um, you know, there's uh, there's comfort in being with those like oneself, and there's, uh, you know, going back to my days in psychology, I can't tell you the theory, but there's group theory that says that, you know, groups, we like to surround ourselves with people um, like us. So I think, you know, that's part of the issue. I think being on a board is a really good gig. At the end of the day, it, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a good job, I mean, it's a part-time job, but it's a good gig, and people don't necessarily want to give it up that easily, so that's, you know, part of the uh, conundrum, is how do we have enough seats open to be able to change, you know, our, our director um, composition in any year anyway, and I'll add just a small curveball to the discussion for for your consideration, and that's, we're still debating this Duality of genders, you know, men and women.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But according to surveys, you know, 50% of millennials believe gender is a spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're no longer binary. And we need to solve this very binary issue now because it's about to get a whole lot more <laughs> complicated, you know, in the very near future. And, yep. You know, so, I mean, we're still talking about this. It's so sort of 2015. <laughs> When we're around the corner, we're going to have all these people come on, and they're not going to fit these kinds of, you know, am I a man or a woman? Hmm. And we need to, like, deal with it now, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> it's really interesting. Right? Cal- California saying? has acted, but is acting on certain past assumptions <laughs> right. which may not prevail. <laughs>
2: Yeah. It's a, I mean, I don't know. I say this to people, and they look at me like I'm out, but I mean, it's a fact, and it's coming, yeah. and it's not, you know, millennials, I mean, I don't have statistics, but they're growing up, and they're coming into the workforce, and they will take leadership roles, and we need to face up to new definitions. Mm-hmm.
1: Including, obviously, the issue about underrepresented minorities, and also, these days, so many companies, look at the S&P 500, for example, Derive so much of their business, certainly a lot of their products from abroad. In fact, the last time, man, I looked at the number, <laughs> 50%, close to 50% of the sales revenue for 500 large companies in the U.S., comes from outside the U.S., so probably a good idea to have a couple of people on the board <laughs> who are not all American, and there may be a spectrum to that, too. Let me remind everybody, ever so briefly, I'm Mike Hussein. I'm with Ann Greenhall. We are talking with Patricia Lenkov, founder and president of Agility Executive Search. Uh, Patricia, without a whole lot of time left, I did want to bring us now to think briefly about Tesla. And for our listeners, I think we've all followed a little bit the news on this. Um, Tell us what happened with this uh, now famous or infamous tweet by the CEO, Elon Musk, and the implications or the consequences for the board of directors.
2: So Elon Musk, in my opinion, is a genius and a visionary and a fabulous inventor and, you know, thoughtful and so on. But I think right now he's running a business, and I think he's said things that he shouldn't in you know, the public domain. And I think right now he needs somebody. I mean, this is what the discussion is about. He needs somebody who's going to help rein him in a little bit. Um, there comes a time in the, chap, you know, in, the, in the timeline of a company where the founder needs to bring in maybe more professional management to help him or her, and I think we saw that happen at Uber, uh, Google, Facebook, they get sort of what we call the grown-up in the room, and I think that's what's going on at Tesla right now. So they have um, asked um, him to, he stepped down as chairman, and they have speculated on who will be the new chairman, and this is sort of step one in helping Elon Musk run this business and improve it. And I think it's, you know, he's creative again and strategic, but he may need more operating Leadership, grown up help, and I think changing also some of the directors on the board will go a long way because this is a board that is classic in terms of its diversity. There are women, there's ethnic diversity. What's missing is industry experience. So this is a board that does not have the appropriate industry experience. Tesla is a manufacturing company, Um, technical manufacturing. They're also in the energy business and solar and power. And if you look at the board, unfortunately, uh, there's not much of that kind of competency on the board. So I think what's happening now will lead to you know, a better configured leadership team that hopefully will help Tesla turn themselves around and become profitable and grow and continue to, you know, allow Elon Musk to do what he does best, which is be creative, um, you know, and think about the future in very unusual ways.
0: So what are some of the names that are floating around, Patricia?
2: Uh, Well, you know, they've they've talked about, of course, James Murdoch to be the chairman, and um, other names, Alan Mulally has been floated around, formerly of Ford, as we know, and Boeing, and uh, James McNerney, former of Boeing, and uh, General Electric. So, you know, heavy-duty manufacturing executives, um, somebody like uh, Dieter uh, Zietzsch, and I'm probably not saying that right, who just stepped down from Volkswagen, although they had their own share of problems. So people who come out of vehicle manufacturing, engineering, You know, in um, the annual report of Tesla, they say our core competencies are powertrain engineering, vehicle engineering, innovative manufacturing, and energy storage. (laughs) You know, it's very simple. So if that's your competencies and that's what business you're in, I do believe you don't have to have the whole board with with that experience, but certainly some directors need to have solid grounding and expertise in these areas, and right now they're not there.
0: So Mike asked earlier in the hour about strategic fit. Just for fun, from your per- perspective, uh, of those four candidates, is there one who stands out for you as being particularly attractive?
2: I am a- an Alan Mulally fan. I have watched his career from you know way back when he was embedded in Boeing, and I think he went into a tough situation at Ford and he did a really good job. So, I don't know what he, you know, his appetite is to come in and do some heavy lifting again, but uh, I'm a fan and you know, I think he could do a really good job anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: certainly at Tesla.
0: And Mike, you've you've written about <laughs> what he did at Ford. Just to remind yeah. listeners uh, what what role hmm. did he play at Ford? And uh, Patricia, do you want to talk about that?
2: He, yeah, he went in. Uh, he was the CEO. I don't know. if Was he the chairman or Bill Ford was the chairman, I believe. Bill
1: Ford stayed as chair.
2: Yeah. So he went in and that was during, you know, I think the automotive crisis that, you know, all, all the autom- other automotive companies were taking bailouts and they had major problems. And I think he came in and put in some discipline and uh, huh. allowed this, you know, Ford to really grow and transform themselves. And he, I believe, is unequivocally, you know, seen as having done a great job.
1: Hmm. Very good. All right, Mike. Patricia, we've only got about five minutes, and I've got a couple more personal closing (laughs) questions here. Uh, Number one, as you came into executive search, and you've been at it now for a while, what is something that you discovered that you just didn't see before you began to do it? And then maybe the flip side of that question, what turns out, that people on the outside think about that field that is not true. So maybe take one or the other or both of those. What did you discover you didn't anticipate and what turns out to be more stereotype or myth than reality?
2: Well, I remember very early on in my search career, we had my boss and myself were really excited. We made a placement and I don't know, it was a CEO, CFO. And I was you know, jumping up and down. This person, our first choice, took the job and we were thrilled. And my boss at the time pulled me, you know, down to earth and said, remember, we don't know until they actually show up for work on the first day, (laughs) you know, whether it's a done deal. And it's very true because we're not, you know, creating widgets. We're dealing in human beings who make, you know, sometimes irrational decisions, change their mind. And uh, she taught me that until the person actually shows up, it's really not a done deal. And I could never have imagined, because in my own experience, it's like if you take a job, you take a job. You start Mm. the job, and you're there. But, no, it's not true, um, apparently. So um,
1: So you hold your breath quite a bit.
2: Yeah, you hold your breath, and you hope that it actually, you know, after all is said and done, that they actually end up, you know, coming to the office on the first day.
0: In the um, academic world, we call that melt. We don't actually know whether or not the students who have accepted are really coming until yeah. we see their faces in their seats.
1: <laughs> and of course, exactly. we die a thousand deaths on that one, <laughs> right, and it sounds exactly. like you've been through that uh, once or <laughs> twice. And then, okay, uh, Tricia, how about the flip side? What, what, what do people think is true, it turns out not to be, about executive search?
2: I will say that the thing that, disturbs me in terms of stereotypes i often describe us as like the bottom feeders you know people think that and then search is you know a low entry business right you need a phone and a computer and you essentially could be in the search business and i feel like you know when you want to do it right it is a disciplined mm-hmm. heavily labor-intensive thoughtful um process and, you know, I feel like sometimes we don't necessarily get the respect. And, you know, there are, there you know, ones who do it well, and then there are the ones who just have a phone and, you know, dial, as we call it, dial for dollars, you know, Mm -hmm. but I feel like, you know, to do it well is a professional sort of, it's not like a lawyer where, you know, you're certified in any way, but we do practice uh, with a code of ethics, and we try to do it the right way, and be thoughtful, and be consultative, and I think the stereotype is, you know, we just sort of slam stuff against the wall and hope that it sticks, and Hmm. it's not true. You know, it's true for some of us, it's not true for others, so that's the stereotype that makes me, you know, disturbed
1: All right, Patricia, that is great. A a final, again, a personal Mm -hmm. question. Uh, I think Ann and I are just uh, looking at each (laughs) other here thinking, well, you really found a great place for yourself to spend a lot of time. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. fun to do, it's interesting, every day is different, uh, and you're making a difference. You're putting leadership in positions where it really has impact. If a listener would like, Patricia, to follow a path, not necessarily along the way, but the final play, resting place, if they want to come into executive search, doing it the kind of the way you do it, what advice would you have for them?
2: I think it's really important to be a combination of introvert and extrovert. And people, It's it's hard, it's tricky, because you have to spend a lot of time alone in front of a computer doing analysis and research and studying people but then you have to be really good on the phone and in interviews and talking to people and i often say we have probably 30 seconds when you get you know an executive on the phone to attract them to your Mm. opportunity so you have to have both sort of sides of the brain um, working, and it's not for everybody because of that. So I think some people are really outgoing and can, you know, don't want to sit in an office. So I think it's important to assess yourself and think about if you like sort of both those sides of what search really is.
1: That's great. Well, Patricia, for those who would like to learn more about you or your firm, give us your guidance on how they can find that out.
2: Sure. My, I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, my website is at www.agilityexecutivesearch.com. I also am on Twitter prolifically, so <laughs> I am easy to find, I think.
1: Excellent. Well, Patricia, we really appreciate your being on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you, Patricia. Thank
2: you. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: All right, everybody, don't go anywhere. Don't even right. think about switching <laughs> <Right>. from Channel <laughs> 132. We're going to take a very short break, and we're going to come back on the air with the CEO of a technology firm that helped rescuers, among other things that has done, of course, uh, to find, locate, and then extract the wild boar soccer team. That was the group of 13, 12 players, and a coach trapped Mm -hmm. in a cave in Thailand. Uh, The whole world was watching. 10,000 rescuers showed up. But technology proved to be vital as well. Mm-hmm. So we're going to hear about that. We're going to talk with somebody who is um, directly involved. I'm Mike Yuseem. You are listening to Leadership in Action. This is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Stick around. Come back. This is Sirius XM Channel 132.
0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.